For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. We've been in the book of Daniel for quite a few weeks now. And uh, we've been in the, the second half of the book talking about this issue of fulfilled prophecy, that there are these extraordinary visions that Daniel had and that were recorded that really accurately laid out the progression of human history in a way that uh, is really hard to explain if there is no God, that uh, the visions that God gave him, a, a, a collection of, of visions that were interrelated, that were deepening and, and broadening his understanding and the record of, of this prophecy that accumulate with this incredible picture of the kingdoms of men will come and the kingdoms of men will go, but at some point God will put a stop to it all and he'll establish his kingdom here. And there's a scary sort of, wow, I mean, you know, we're talking about end times, you know, what does that look like? There's been a lot of... Uh, Hollywood shenanigans and, and, and um, dramatizations. And then there are, but there are some things to it that are quietly, quite frankly more fantastic than anything that Hollywood's ever done. So how do we think about that? You know, what does Daniel say about that? What does the Bible say about that? And we could spend a whole 10 weeks on that question very easily. Um, but what I want to do is I just kind of want to show you what Daniel says, and then how other authors and other teachers and Jesus himself understood what Daniel said and even added to and, and, and filled out that picture even more. And so the whole thing, the, the first vision in the book of Daniel was this statue. Remember the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had? And uh, God used it in so many ways. He used it to... Um, Get Nebuchadnezzar asking questions. He was a very disturbing dream where he had this vision, right? And then he also used it to build Daniel's credibility. But then he also uses it as the, as the foundation for these other subsequent visions in the book of Daniel. And that, you know, the idea with this was that each type of metal in this statue represented a different kingdom, right? Of, of a powerful empire of... of of human beings in the region of Mesopotamia. And the subsequent visions of the, the lion and the bear and the leopard and then the ram and the goat, they all kind of fed in together and were giving us different perspectives, different visions on the same thing. So we spent several weeks studying that and understanding the incredible picture, the incredible detail that God gave Daniel in these visions of what would happen historically and how you can go and and, and historically verify the fulfillment of those visions. And so, you know, in chapter 2, you have the statue. In chapter 7, you have the, the beasts. In chapter 8, you have the, uh, the ram and the goat. And the Bible's very specific on those first three, what kingdoms those are. We're not speculating about that. We're not just trying to jam, you know, history into making it seem like the prophecy is fulfilled. They're specifically named Babylon, Persia, and Greece are what those nations are about. But the fourth kingdom uh, is a little less clear. And it's very important because this is the last kingdom of men. 
And the picture that's painted here, if you'll remember from the statue, is that the kingdoms of men will come and they'll progress, and then at a certain point, this stone that it says was cut without human hands came and smashes the statue, you know, obliterates the kingdoms of men, and grows into an everlasting kingdom, and it's the kingdom of the Lord. And so what is the final kingdom of men, and what does it look like? What does God mean when he says he's going to come and establish his kingdom? Is the question that is really, in a lot of ways, the more important question, because it's has a lot to do with the as-of-yet unfulfilled parts of these dreams and these visions. And we can't do a, a study on the book of Daniel without spending some time asking that question and looking at where is this headed. Now, we know that the, the next kingdom, that you know, the, the third kingdom was Greece, and that the next big kingdom that came from a historical perspective was Rome. And in the statue, the shins are of iron, And there's a great description that sounds like Rome fits very nicely. But then the feet of the statue are a mixture of iron and clay, right? And we talked about this, how, uh, you know, it seems very much like Rome. And then there was the vision in chapter 7 of the terrifying beast. Like every other animal, like Daniel could say, it corresponded to something he understood. That's a bear. That's a lion. That's a leopard. He was like, I don't know what this was, but it scared me. It was vicious. And, and so this last kingdom stands out in a number of ways. It's talked about differently. It's described differently. And as we moved into Daniel 9, we got into this issue of the Sabbath weeks, the, the Shabuah, remember the 70 sets of seven of Daniel 9, which overlays over these prophecies and intertwines with them in some pretty interesting ways. It gets confusing, so we have to kind of clear some of this out and, and, and look at this picture. And what we studied last week had to do with the period between 444 B.C. and 33 A.D. And we did some complicated you know, math to figure out what those 77s were about, discussed the starting point for that prophecy, the end point for that prophecy, and saw one of the coolest and most interesting and accurate prophecies in all of Scripture that predicted when the Messiah would come, that he would be cut off, and that Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed. And so during that period, this uh, nation of Rome arises and becomes uh, more powerful, takes over the, the territories that were a part of the Greek Empire. And so it's within the context of Rome that the whole 70 weeks of of Daniel and that prophecy take place. The 70 sets, or the 62 sets of seven and the seven sets of seven. Jerusalem and the temple will be rebuilt according to that prophecy and the Messiah will come. So we keep moving down this timeline and we keep finding we're still looking at these visions and we're looking at the fulfillment of these things and it's super intriguing, it's super involving uh, because this picture fits so well with so much of the historical record. And if we pick back where we left off last week, we get to Daniel 9, verse 26, and we see that there's still some more already fulfilled prophecy there. He says, then after the 62 sets of seven, because remember, the 444 was seven sets of seven, and then there would be 62 sets of seven for a total of 69 sets of seven. 
But the vision was 70 sets of seven. And he says, after the 62, so after 33 AD, he says, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood even to the end. There, uh, there will be war, desolations are determined. And so we know that the Messiah was indeed cut off. He was crucified. Jesus Christ went to the cross. The best date we have for that is 33 AD. And he's saying, so after these 69 sets of seven, some things will happen. He doesn't define them as the 70th seven. There's one more set of seven to go. But he's saying after after the 62 sets of seven, and in fact... Jesus was crucified in 33 AD. The Romans came in in the middle of a a Jewish rebellion where they were trying to throw Rome out. They came in and just crushed them. I mean, just destroyed Israel, destroyed the temple, wiped them out, spread them all over the Roman Empire, and Israel ceased to exist. Now, the Jews continued to, to uh, celebrate their religion and their culture, but they were now spread out all throughout the Roman Empire. They weren't allowed to live in Israel. And it appeared as though the nation of Israel was gone forever, because that was something that Rome was pretty good at, was wiping out its enemies. And that was described by Daniel and this vision that he had 500 years before the fact. But it leaves these really important questions, this unfinished business of who are the people of the prince who is to come, right? And who, well, that they just explained. He said, the people who destroyed the temple are the people of the prince who is to come. So that would be Rome. Romans did what he said they would do there. But who is the prince who is to come? The context would indicate that the people of the prince to come are the people who do this, but the prince who is to come comes after that. But how much after? And what do we know about that prince? Where did this last set of seven go? He said 70 sets of seven. We've accounted for 69 sets of seven. We have material here describing something that happens after the 62nd, or the 69th actually, But where's the 70th set of seven? And what happens during that final set of seven? And Daniel does not leave us wondering about that. He talks about that quite a bit. The next verse in Daniel 9, verse 27, talks more about this prince to come. He says, he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, He will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Not super uh, easy to understand what's being said there, but I would draw your attention to this. This one week, the Hebrew word there, it's being translated as week, but the the same Hebrew word here for sets of seven, Shabuah, What we have here is the 70th seven, right? The context of Daniel 9 that we've been reading all the way through, there's one set of seven left, and he's talking about the people of the prince who is to come and the prince who is to come, and he says, 
that this prince will come and he will rule for one set of seven. And halfway through that set of seven, which in that case would be three and a half years, he's going to put an end to sacrifice in the temple. Now that's interesting for a number of reasons because first of all, from Daniel's perspective, there is no temple. It hasn't been rebuilt yet. And he's already prophesied the destruction of the temple. And then it's clear that after the destruction of the temple, this prince of the people who is to come puts a stop to sacrifice in the temple, which would require what? A temple. <laughs> so he, the prince of the people to come comes after the temple. The 70th seven begins with a covenant between him and the many. And at three and a half years in, he will put a stop to sacrifice at the temple. The 70th seven appears to require there be a temple. And so the idea that there's a long gap between the end of the 69th seven and the beginning of the 70th seven, it's required. It's, it's clear that that's necessary because the temple has to both be rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt before the 70th seven can happen. Hmm. That gap of the temple being rebuilt means sacrifice would be resumed. A powerful prince, it's somehow related to Rome. Why? Because the people of the prince who is to come are the people who destroyed the temple in 70 AD. And he comes and he makes some kind of treaty. He says, uh, and he comes into power. He makes a treaty with the many. So can we learn more about this kingdom this fourth kingdom, and can we learn more about this prince who is to come that plays this role that's being talked about at the end of Daniel 9? Well, the first thing that would make sense to me to do would be to go back and look at the visions that we've already studied about the different kingdoms, and let's focus specifically on the, what it says about the fourth kingdom, Right? And see what we can learn about the kingdom and the prince. So let's go back to the statue. Once again, it's like this statue is like the table of contents for the visions in Daniel, right? And we go back and we say, okay, we want to focus on that. What is said about that? We go to Daniel 2, verse 40. There will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these into pieces. Now, one of the things you have to understand, especially with, uh, with, with Hebrew writing, is when something's repeated over and over again, that's for emphasis. That's, that's the importance. So crush, break, destroy. Iron, hard, right? Like these are the things that I mean, it's just repeating those words over and over and over again. This is an incredibly strong kingdom. But when it comes to the feet that this kingdom has two different features, unlike all the other kingdoms. Part of it, is the shins are super strong, but the feet at the bottom in Daniel 2.43 says, and that you saw that the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine together with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. Clay is not strong. 
I mean, one, you think about the physics of a statue like that. It would fall apart. Its feet, are, its foundations are weak. But this kingdom has this incredible strength, yet it has this mix and this component and these pizzas and these parts that don't stick well together. You can't bond iron to clay very well. And he says in 44, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. So this is the last kingdom. It's strong, it's fierce, right? The kingdom will be powerful. It'll be dominant. It's going to take over and it's gonna, it's gonna rule everything. It's gonna run everything, but it's gonna be strange. It's gonna be a strange mix of parts. And what did he say? He said, in the days of those kings. So it seems as though maybe the way that it's mixed, maybe the way that you know, iron is mixed with clay and it doesn't stick well, this would be a conglomeration, a, a coming together. But it'll have more than one ruler. But it is, what we're talking about here is the last kingdom of men. That's what's clear. That's what's being described. So we jump ahead then and we go down to our next vision, Daniel 7, right? What does it say about the, the terrifying beast? That, that beast represents a kingdom. He says in 7, verse 7, After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying, extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth, and it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now, some people like to point out that the statue had 10 toes, right? And the beast has 10 horns. That might be another correlation. Maybe. I, I mean, I wouldn't want to get too dogmatic about that. But what's clear is that the statues and the materials represented kingdoms. The beasts in this vision that we've studied represent kingdoms. And the fourth kingdom and the fourth beast have very similar properties, Terrifying, strong, crushing, trampling, iron are all mentioned about both of them. So we've talked about, you know, I keep putting Taz up there because, you know, what, what does the terrifying beast look like, right? He's dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. He has 10 horns, right? And what are these horns about? Well, in the other vision, horns represented leadership. The horns were the leaders of those empires. And we just saw that the feet of clay and iron together had kings, plural. And this beast has 10 different horns. And he says, while I, in verse 8, while I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. <coughs> and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots by it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great prose. Sounds like a really bizarre vision. But there's strife among these leaders of this kingdom. And one of them seems to come to some kind of dominance. And it says in 21, I kept looking at the horn and it was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the ancient of days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one. Now, saints, in the, the way that the Bible uses the word saints, it just means, that just means believers. And so in this last kingdom of men that will be incredibly powerful, one of the rulers will come to dominance and he will persecute the believers of the Bible 
until God comes and says, we're putting an end to all of this, and he establishes his kingdom. The timing fits. The descriptions fit, right? This beast is fierce. It's terrifying. Seems like it's led by 10 kings. One of them comes to dominance until God puts it to an end. It's a little bit more of a picture of what we had from the statue, but it's consistent and it's highly likely that they're describing exactly the same thing, which is this final kingdom of men and its ruler. Now, it turns out you can go to the book of Revelation, written hundreds and hundreds of years later, right, by the disciple John, who was having visions about the end of the kingdoms of men, And he writes in Revelation 13, 1 through 2, And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming out of the sea having ten horns. Is it Taz? Right? Well, remember that in Daniel 7, this is exactly what happened. He was looking at the seashore, and all of the beasts that he saw were coming up out of the sea. And so this is definitely a reference to the same kind of prophetic imagery that Daniel was using. And so this beast comes out of the sea and has ten horns, but this one has seven heads. That's interesting because remember the ten horns, one of them overtook three of them in that picture, in that vision that Daniel had. And on the heads were blasphemous names, and the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and its feet were like a bear, and its mouth was like the mouth of a lion. Do you think John's read Daniel, right? That's the whole beast vision that he had. There was a leopard, a bear, and a lion that were a part of those visions for the future kingdoms of men. And so this beast represents a kingdom that represents all the kingdoms of men and the last kingdoms of men. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority we continue reading on a little bit in Revelation, we see in, in uh, chapter 13, 5 through 7, there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months. How long is 42 months? It's three and a half years. The seventh seven, something happens significant in the middle of the seventh seven, which is at three and a half years, isn't it? The prince of the people who is to come puts a stop to sacrifice in the temple. So he was given authority to act for 42 months, and he opened his mouth and blasphemes against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority over every tribe, people, tongue, and nation was given to him. It sounds very much like we are supposed to go back and read Daniel, understand what's being talked about there, and understand that we're talking about exactly the same thing here, but we're being given a little more detail. Who is this ruler, this future ruler that the Bible is saying will come? Well, if you accept that the prince who is it to come in Daniel 9, the little horn on the beast in Daniel 7, and the beast in Revelation 13 are the same person, which I think there is definite cause to do that, then what you get is a worldwide ruler who hates God, 
who wants to be worshiped as God, who wages war against God people, God's people and will rule for three and a half years. Now, anytime you guys, you know, when he's talking about unfulfilled prophecy, yes, there should be a level of skepticism. There should be a level, you know, a lot of people have, have made God's name and God's word look bad by reading too much into these things for you know, too many years and been wrong too many times. But I hope that what you can see is there is a definite reason and logic. And what I would argue is that it's intentional on the part of the authors. They want us to make these connections. And what they're giving us are pieces of a larger picture that's very important. And we're moving into the realm now of unfulfilled prophecy right? The temple destroyed in 70 AD, unfulfilled. What happens then? Well, this 70th seven, we're being told, begins with the prince of the people who is to come, establishing a treaty with the many. That begins the 70th seven, which is a literal seven-year period. And that seven-year period ends with what the Bible calls the day of the Lord, the time where the kingdom of God comes and establishes its eternal rule among mankind. Halfway through that seven-year period, the, the prince, the ruler, the beast comes and puts a sac- an end to sacrifice in the temple. And this is often referred to as the seven-year tribulation or the tribulation. And that's talked about a lot of places in Scripture. Now go back and think about what we just read in Daniel 9 in the context of that picture. Daniel 9.27, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, for one set of seven. But in the middle of that set of seven, he will put a stop to sacrifice grain offering on the wing of abominations. One will come who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now, is this just like, if you're sitting there and you're just like, I can't believe that people in the 21st century believe this kind of stuff, you know, and you're like, oh, you know, let's just, let's just get that on the table. That's reasonable. That's, that's, you know, that's an understandable position to take, especially if you, if you haven't spent a lot of time and you don't have a lot of reason to have confidence in the Bible. And so if this is your first time here, one of the things I would really ask you to do is to get online and go back and, and study some of the other teachings that we've done leading up to this one, because a lot of what we've done has shown us that we have a lot of reason to be confident in these prophecies and to try to make sense of them and to try to understand them. We also can be confident because Jesus also clearly read the book of Daniel and expounded Upon these visions himself, Matthew 24, 14 through 16, he says, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which is spoken about through, the, through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, For then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world till now nor ever will. 
Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Jesus is saying, Daniel is right. There is going to come a calamity, and it's going to start. The real bad, hard part is going to start when the world ruler goes into the temple, stops the sacrifice, and says he should be worshipped instead of the God of the Bible. And what happens after that is such a tough time, such a difficult time, that God is going to have to step in. And that's also, I think, a very important part of this that we need to remember. I think a lot of what you read about in Revelation, a lot of what you see there is man's inhumanity to man. That we are going to continue to fight, we're going to continue to strive, we're going to continue to be greedy, we're going to continue to be vicious, and there's going to come a point, according to the scripture, where all life on earth would be wiped out. And then God's going to blow the whistle, say, game over, I am not going to allow this to happen, and I am stepping in, the time of the kingdoms of men is over. Because if I don't stop you now, you're literally going to wipe each other from the face of the earth. That's pretty interesting. Paul also believed this. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and gathering together to him that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect of the day the Lord has come. Don't be sitting around shaking and be like, is it going to come? What's going to happen? There's going to be a lot of misinformation, a lot of rumors, a lot of ideas, a lot of speculation. Don't get caught up in that. He says in verse 3, let no one deceive you. For it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God displaying himself as being God. Right back there, same as Daniel, same as Jesus, same as John, right? They're all talking about this same event that happens halfway through the seventh or the, the, the 70th set of sevens, where, te- where sacrifice will be stopped in the temple and someone will set themselves up to be worshiped as God. And so we start plugging in those things into the timeline. We know it starts with the peace treaty. There will apparently be about three and a half years of world peace. The first half of the seven years of tribulation isn't that bad. It's kind of good. They says they'll be saying peace and safety unless you're a follower of God. Because the, wo- the world will be united on one thing, which is that you suck, right? And that there will be these turmoils and it will be very difficult to be a follower of God during that time. And then halfway through that, the sacrifice stops The beast, the little horn, the prince of the people who is to come sets himself up to be worshipped in the temple of God and the last three and a half years, which is known as the Great Tribulation, which are the events where the unraveling of the environment, of the um, 
the human uh, political situation where these huge wars take place and it looks like, literally, it's Armageddon. And this is something that we do to each other. And God says, time out. And he brings in the day of the Lord. It's that same vision, Daniel chapter 2, where the kingdoms of men come to an end and God establishes his kingdom. Is this at all plausible? Well, we have to, again, consider the accuracy of the prophecy that we've looked at so far. There's some compelling evidence that Daniel had a true connection with the God of the Bible who decided to reveal to him the whole course of human history in broad strokes with some amazing detail smattered in between. And we can look and we can see with with a fair degree of confidence that we can understand a lot of what's being talked about there and we can see that a lot of it has been fulfilled and if if we can count on and we believe that what's been said has been fulfilled then what should we do with the parts that haven't take them pretty seriously not get too dogmatic about what they mean because i mean this is some wild stuff but Try to look at it in the broad strokes so that we can have an understanding of the flow and course of human history so that we can get involved. Not in the war, but in the cause of God. To bring the love of God and the light of God in the midst of the human race spinning out of control and hurtling toward its self-imposed doom. When you study the features of this great tribulation, you know, uh, I actually get a lot more confident in it as, uh, from that. If you think about it, like the idea of a one world government, I mean, we're a long way from that, but I would say we're a lot closer to something like that now than we've ever been at any point in human history. Why? Globalization. Our economies are far more connected with everybody else in the world because of technology and communication, uh, transportation. The world is shrinking in the sense of all aspects of the world are far more accessible. It used to be that if you wanted to go to Europe, you got on a boat and you likely died on the way there. (laughs) Right? I mean, The world has become a much more accessible place. The idea, you know, when we say like Alexander the Great ruled the world, we're we're saying he ruled the world that he knew about, which was not a very big piece of it, right? China would beg to differ that Alexander the Great ruled the world, right? Because, I mean, it wouldn't have really been possible. I mean, if communication would have taken a year to get from one part of the world to another part of the world to, you know, how are things going over there one year later? Then they send a message back. It's bad. We need help, right? Like, how do you rule in that, in that case? You couldn't. But it seems like it makes a lot more sense. You could, you could really understand where, no, I don't think we're close to that happening. I, I don't know, you know, but... Uh, borders are becoming a lot less meaningful than they used to. And our economies are becoming a lot more dependent on each other than they used to. 
especially if you look in the last 50 years, the acceleration of the possibility of something like that at some point. It would probably take some kind of worldwide calamity, some kind of horrific you know, economic collapse to create an opportunity for something like that to happen, but it, it's conceivable that that could happen. Another feature of this is that this ruler will have total control over money and commerce. And this is the much vaunted, you know, the number of the beast. And, whoa, it's your social security number, you know. It's like these things where you're just like, oh, God, you know. Come on, right? But think about this from the perspective of ancient man. How easy would it have been for any worldwide ruler to stop the buying and selling of any goods? Look at, look at the verse. Revelation 13, 6 and 18 says... He, the, the, the ruler also forced everyone, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, everyone, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless they had the number. Right? Now go back to 500 BC when Daniel wrote his, or 70 AD when John wrote this, and ask yourself, how realistic was it that that could happen? Right? And then ask yourself, how realistic is that? Just the capability. I'm just talking about the infrastructure to do something like this. Where no one in the world can buy or sell anything without a number. A cashless society where you can't do any buying or selling unless you have a registry of some kind. I mean, it's a lot more convincing that that could happen today than it was when John wrote that. I can tell you that. There's weird things like this torch that falls from the sky that's described in uh, Revelation 8.10. It says, the third angel sounded and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the, on the springs of waters. The name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many died from bit wa- the waters because they were made bitter. Now, you're John, and you're giving a vision, Right? And you're, you have no category for a lot of the things that exist in modern times, in our culture. And so you have to use what's called perspectival language. You have to use labels from things that you're familiar with to describe things that you have no category for, right? And so he's looking, and he's looking at the night sky, and this bright shining light falls from the sky, and it poisons a third of all the fresh water supply. He would have no category for what that was. What could he have been seeing that looked like a torch that would fall from the sky that would have the capability of poisoning a third of the waters of the earth? Can we think of anything like that in our modern context? That an ancient man in 70 AD who was watching, given a vision of something that might happen in the future, and what might he use to describe? And you're like, that doesn't look like a torch at all. Well, that's just a picture of a recent missile test from North Korea, and that's going up. This is what it looks like when it's about to hit the earth. I think an ancient man saying, that's a torch that fell from the sky and poisoned a third of the waters on the earth is not nearly as much of a stretch today as it was in 70 AD. And I find that very interesting, very compelling. It would have been a lot harder for Daniel or John 
or Jesus or Paul to believe what it was that the Holy Spirit was showing them, inspiring them to write a lot harder for them than it is for us. Think about it from Daniel's perspective. From Daniel's perspective, the temple was destroyed when he was a kid. He's not only predicting that it needed to be rebuilt, but it would also need to be destroyed again and rebuilt again. I mean, he's got to be like, you know, that's, that's hard. That's hard to accept that that could happen, but it's necessary for what he's laying out. We go back to our timeline. Israel wiped out in 70 AD. From a historical perspective, they should, you know, they're gone, right? They're They are not allowed to live in their land. They are spread out. And what do they do? They move into different places of the Roman Empire, parts of what we now call Europe, and they establish communities, Jewish ghettos in many towns all over Europe, and they maintain their culture. They maintain their dietary laws, their dress, their faith, and their scriptures. And they do that for almost 2,000 years. They still are there with a strong sense of identity and a strong sense of purpose and a strong belief because the book of Ezekiel predicts the destruction of Israel and the regathering of the nation of Israel. And for 2,000 years, everybody laughs and says, oh my God, all of this. And uh, the, you know, you were reading this prophecy in uh, 1850, you'd be like, Israel isn't even a nation, let alone uh, having a temple. There's no way, they're gone, they're done. Isn't the Bible silly? Or if you have respect for the Bible, then you're desperately flailing like, well, this is all symbolic and it's all very, you know, uh, you know, it shouldn't be taken literally, right? And then what happened was the Holocaust and World War II, where for the first time in 2,000 years, world opinion and sympathies went to the Jewish people. And in a controversial and, and, and no way am I saying justified uh, move, the nation of Israel was regathered and reformed in 1948. That's not making any commentary on the people who, the Palestinian people who were living there and who got devastated as a result of that. But it's a reality that there was no Israel for nearly 2,000 years, wiped out in 70 AD, and they were back in 1948, and they're still there today. Historically speaking, that is a miracle of the first order. And the fact that it was predicted and it was a necessary component of the things that we're talking about should not escape our attention. There needs to be a temple, right? This is the website for the Temple Institute, which is a very serious set of very conservative Jewish believers who have an office in Jerusalem, in a museum in Jerusalem, I had the opportunity to go there and, and see it for myself. And what they are doing is they are collecting money and uh, trying to collect political power so that they can rebuild the temple and literally resume the sacrifice of the temple according to Leviticus. 
And millions of dollars are being poured into this. And they are making the implements. That is the ephod. That is the priestly garb of the high priest as described in Leviticus with the jewels that, um, that have engraved on them the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And that, really, they need a better mannequin, but uh, that is what sits in the museum of the Temple Institute in Jerusalem today. And they have many other things. They want to build all of the things that are necessary. So from their perspective, as soon as the temple is is back up, they can boom, move right now to resume the sacrifice in the temple. There's a little problem. It's called the Dome of the Rock, which is the second holiest site in the Muslim religion. And it is built right on top of the spot where the Jewish temple used to be. And this is a part of the source of the tension between these two great groups of people and why they're, part of why they're hated so much is one, because so many Arabs were displaced when um, Israel was, was sent back in. And this dome represents, this, this mosque represents a huge issue of tension. The control of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem to this day is a very politically tenuous, stressful situation that could, that could uh, erupt into all kinds of calamity at any time. Because by even saying we want to rebuild the temple, what you're saying is we want to destroy the second most holy site in Islam. But the Bible says that that is going to happen that there will be a temple. And so the thing that everybody always wants to do is, oh, when's it going to be? Like, give us a, you know, mark my calendar, you know. Uh, You know, everybody always thinks it's going to happen in their lifetime, right? Everybody's convinced that this is the end and things couldn't possibly get worse, and then they do, right? Well, what I want to do is I just want to give you two. There There are quite a few prerequisites, but there's two that I think are really important. One, actually both of them we've already read. Matthew 24, 14, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. All people groups have to be made aware of Jesus Christ and the gospel. That's a prerequisite. That doesn't mean that the second that they all become aware, you know, a bell will ring and the tribulation will begin. Right, But it does mean that the tribulation will not begin until that happens. Again, though, I would point you to globalization, technology, communication, and the shrinking reality of the connectedness that we have with the entire world and would want you to know that this process has been greatly accelerated in our lifetime. Because of travel and communication and resources. This is an article from the Denver Post last year who wrote an article from Wycliffe. They're um, a, a, a large organization dedicated to Bible translation. And the, the headline is, Bible translators hope to have every language covered in the next 15 years. Every expert would say that in terms of that particular key prerequisite, that will be fulfilled in our lifetime. That article is one year old. I did a little research, and there's a Klingon Bible. 
for example. <laughs> I'm not even going to try to read Psalm 2 and cling on. But, you know, my point is this, is uh, even if you're a Trekkie, we have a Bible for you. All people groups are being reached. So one key prerequisite is the gospel reaching to all nations. Another is the rebuilding of the temple. Same thing. The temple can be rebuilt, and we're not like, oh, the, the tribulation starts now. No, I mean, the temple could be rebuilt, and we could go on for another thousand years. But when those two things are reasonably fulfilled, right, we know that those are necessary prerequisites before it starts. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 4, let no one in any way deceive you for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, display himself as being God. That has to happen first. So there has to be a temple, and there has to be sacrifice happening in that temple. And as hard as that is to believe that that could ever be happening again, let me just say it's so much easier to believe today than it was 60 years ago. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 36, but the day and the hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. Let that sink in. When anybody says, I got it, I figured out the formula, right? I know when it's going to happen. They have not read their Bible very well, actually, or, very, or understood it very well, or they're intentionally trying to deceive. If Jesus doesn't know, only the Father knows. We can, we've been given pictures, we've been given Evidence to know that the progression of human history will move in a certain way, but when the specific end begins, the beginning of the end is unknown. Thessalonians, 1 Thess 5, 2, Paul says, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. It will not come at a time where it's like so clear and so obvious to everybody. But there are things to be looked at. There are signs. We've just only scratched the surface of this, right? I mean, I have skipped over so much detail from Revelation and from Daniel just to try to put a cohesive picture in order to hopefully inspire you to think about this a little bit more and study it a little bit more. Let's talk about the takeaway. The takeaway, I think, is Daniel put it really well to Nebuchadnezzar when he had that crazy dream of the statue. He said, during the lifetime of those kings, the God of heaven will set up another kingdom that will never be destroyed or given to another group of people. This kingdom will crush all the other kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will continue forever. That's God's plan, is to literally rule and dwell and live among us, having removed all corruption. It's terrifying to think about what this would look like because it is going to get very difficult and very painful and there's going to be a great deal of suffering and hardship in the future of the, of the human situation. 
But that suffering must be kept in perspective. Revelations 21.4 says, And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away, and he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write these words. Our faith for these words are faithful and true. And then he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. I don't know. I don't know about you, but I have tears that need to be wiped away in eternity. I have things and pains, and I know that you do too. And that problem of evil, that problem of why could a good God, how could a good God allow so much evil, so much pain, and so much suffering, the answer is, is because he's waiting for you. He's waiting for you to put down your rebellion and receive life, eternal life, spiritual life. Through Jesus Christ, because a time is coming where he will put an end to all the suffering and all the pain, and he wants you to be with him when that happens. He is waiting because he wants as many people to come to him as possible, and he is allowing evil and injustice to endure, but only to a point. And then he's going to destroy it and it will never return. And we, we will be together with him, with, new, with a new nature, a new body, a new perspective where we can live out eternity in love and harmony and communion without all those things. And that picture of him personally wiping away our tears from all the things that we've witnessed, the things that we've perpetrated, and the ways that we've been wronged, to have those tears wiped away and live together with him and with each other in eternity is the best possible news there could be. It's the best possible of all outcomes. And God promises that 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 is true. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, 4 through 9, but you, brethren, are not in darkness that 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 the day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and the sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness, so let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober." having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation for God has not destined us for wrath, but obtaining salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us strive on in the midst of all that calamity, of all that pain, knowing that one day evil will be destroyed, our tears will wiped away and God will make everything right. But in the meantime, there is work to do. 
the work of the Lord, the love of the Lord, the light of God shining into the darkness to help others understand that they are loved, that they are wanted, and this is not what God planned. This world of pain and suffering is a world of our own making. The kingdoms of men have created this situation and they've been allowed to go on and they will continue to go on to a point and then God will finally say, it's enough. Daniel 12.3 says, those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. As the world grows dark and bleak and as injustice rise and as calamity rises and as evil becomes more and more prevalent, if you believe in the love of God and you let him work through you, as the background around you becomes more and more bleak and dark and decrepit, you will stand out all the more because you will be love. Love in the midst of tyranny. Patience, peace, kindness. As the kingdoms of men spin out of control, those things will stand out like never before. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 14, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. He's talking about the trajectory of the human heart as we grow closer to this time. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This kingdom of the gospel shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Daniel concludes with this thought in Daniel 12.10. Many will be purged, purified and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly. And none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. And that's the point. That's the point of what we can do with this is we can, we can know where the world is headed and we can know that it's headed for destruction, but we don't have to be cynical about that. We can be hopeful and we can provide hope to those who don't have any understanding or any hope and who are going to look around and who are right now your neighbors and your friends and your family members. What are they doing? They're looking around and they're saying, how did it get this messed up? Why am I so angry? How could we be so divided? How how could things be so crazy and so out of control? And we, in one sense, can say, you ain't seen nothing yet. But there's also an answer. And that answer is love. Is the love of God. And that's what can bring us together. Don't discredit yourself with wild speculation, you know. Oh, it's, you know, it's like, oh, the Antichrist, it's Obama, it's Trump, it's Oprah, you know, and you're just like, (laughs) this could go on for thousands of years. Every generation has thought, we're the one. There's something, you know, we're megalomaniacs, all of us. We're the ones, right? It's true. Everything I've said is true. There are conditions and there are factors that are really interesting in light of these scriptures where you can see uh, far more clearly how these things that are described at the end could happen in our time. 
But a lot of those things could be fulfilled and then go on for thousands of years. We don't know when the end will come, but we do know that our end is coming. And we do know in ourselves, right? What if I said to you, you know, the world is going to end and all this is going to happen in 70 years. Would that change the way you're living your life? If it would, then I think you should think about the fact that you're probably not going to live another 70 years. Meaning, your opportunity, whether the end times is a thousand years off or not, your end time is close. It's near. And the idea of what should I be spending my life doing and what should it look like and how should I be engaged with others, that should be good enough for us. I'm 41 years old. I definitely don't have another 70 years. I'll have another 30 or 40 if I'm lucky. And whether the end times comes then or or well after that, I have an opportunity and I need to live my life knowing that my time to make a difference in the midst of all that evil and all that calamity, my time is now. And so is yours. It could also come true in our lifetime. But it doesn't really matter in the sense of how we should look at our lives and how we should live. The answer is the same. So, you know, study. This material is important. And if you're fascinated and you want to go deeper, by all means, go deeper. But don't let it distract you from the point, which is the world is falling apart and people don't know God. Don't sit there studying the fascinations of the destruction of the world while it crumbles around you doing nothing. Get involved. And that's it. That's it for the book of Daniel. Yeah, God, thank you that um, you have a, a, a vision that is both terrifying and great. Um, It's called the great and terrible day of the Lord for a reason Um, because the destruction of evil includes us. Uh, We are the problem, but the redemption of your people is glorious and your picture of eternity is amazing. I pray for anybody here, God, who doesn't know you and is just like, why am I here and how did this happen? And, uh, And I feel really weird about this. I just pray that they would, um, they would take some time to reflect and, and to ask questions and, and get engaged with uh, any questions that they might have, and that you would help us uh, in the, with the people in, in our lives who don't know you just to be bold and to see uh, our opportunity here for what it is, which is um, short and important. In Jesus' name, amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.